Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Nika. I am delighted that you're with me here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Um, you and I scheduled this. I, I think you and I connected. Um, I don't know when we connected, probably sometime before the holidays. Um, and uh, and I had picked up the book that you contributed to. I think you helped or- orchestrate the book uh, a little more than maybe six months ago or so. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that. And, um, and and then we're going to talk about whatever big idea or bold opinion you have. But Nika, before we get started, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Oh, sure, Jason. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for reaching out. My name is Anika Allen. I'm a relationship builder, a stone catcher, a freedom fighter, a storyteller. 
and a coach. And so, Nika, uh, yeah, that's me. Yes, yes. So Nika, you and a group of women uh, uh, co-authored a book that a lot of us have been talking about in the fundraising space, and you can put the, the specific dates on it so that I don't botch up the specifics about when this came out. But the name of the book is Collecting Courage, Joy, Pain, Freedom, and Joy, Pain, Freedom, and Love, Anti-Black Racism in the Charitable Sector. And, um, and, and, and I, and I just want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about the book before we get started on our sort of the main part of our conversation. And I want to, I want to share with you a particular point in the section that you wrote. You describe here, Nika, you said, after a decade of searching for my life's purpose, I fell into an opportunity. I fell into an opportunity to participate in a capital campaign. And then you describe here later on just a paragraph or so down. You said it was the precise place that I discovered. I, it was the precise place that I discovered love for who I am. Yeah. And for me to hear capital campaign, and this is all related to a church too, uh, in, involved with the restoration of a church building. Um, I just love hearing the idea. And I'm sure our, all of our listeners can appreciate that, that I love hearing the idea that a fundraiser has sort of has through the process of raising money for the restoration of a church building. Um, discovered love for who you are. So tell us a little bit yeah. about this book, if you don't mind. Tell us about cool. the book that I'm referencing, and then tell us a little bit about that story before we get started. With pleasure, with pleasure. So Collecting Courage um, was published in November of 2020, actually. So what okay. happened was in 2019, I was working with 10 Black sister friends and colleagues who are also fundraisers. And yeah. we had launched into a partnership with AFP Global to uh, produce what they were referring to as white papers. And it became what is called our right to heal. And they are 10 first person narratives around the way in which each of us as black women fundraisers have healed from the trauma that we've experienced in the charitable sector. And that project was supposed to launch early, um, early or, early in 2019 and it didn't yeah. or sorry in 2020 and it didn't for a variety of reasons and it got delayed and delayed and delayed and it ended up getting published the day after George Floyd was murdered okay and that just changed the trajectory of that project and yes. it changed the way the messages we were sharing were being heard and so what happened was collecting courage was birthed from that moment in time so that was May 2020. Yep. And by November 2020, we had published Collecting Courage, which is an anthology of 15 uh, Black fundraisers and charitable nonprofit professionals, mainly women. We have one male author, Medea Caruzzi, my good brother. And, um, and so that book really emerged from a place of wanting to, again, document our stories our experiences in our voice for the sector and for ourselves, frankly. Yeah. So, uh, yes. And I, I enjoyed it. I read all of them, all the, all the essays. Tell us a little bit about that story that you tell there before we uh, get to your big idea. Yeah, absolutely. So I was one of those young people who never knew exactly what they wanted to do. In life. <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> and I, you know, I was, yeah, you know, I was growing up in in a time where, you know, the role that women played was was changing and expanding and 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 transforming, 
And so, you know, I wanted to be a mom, but I also knew I couldn't stay home because I was getting all these messages. And then I was trying to figure out, well, what do I want to do? And I couldn't figure that out. And so I just sort of did the things I knew I was supposed to do. So I went to school and still didn't know. And, you know, I went to college and I studied something general, still didn't know. And then I landed at the um, museum, the African, I'm sorry, the Amherstburg Freedom Museum. That's what it's now called then it was called the North American Black Historical Museum. Yes. To work on this capital campaign. And so I was hired to essentially write a stewardship report of the process of restoring the Nazarene AME Church, which was a station on the Underground Railroad for the federal government here in Canada. And little did I know what would happen to me in that process. And so I found myself trying to document a process that was both historical, present, and had future implications. Mm -hmm. And that museum holds and carries my own family history. So it was extremely personal at the same time. And I was watching all of these people gather together to restore and save this, this church, which was a historical monument on the museum property. And a couple of things happened. As I began to pour over those papers and understanding the historical nature of the building and the people, the people who made that building with their hands and also created the stories that emerge from the building, right? That give it meaning. Mm-hmm. These people were people I know. These were, these were families that I know. It included my family. And so it's, it was in that discovery, that tangible sort of touching of history and understanding the important and vital role that people, Black people in Canada were playing as it relates to the pursuit of freedom that I began to connect the dots around the messages that were sent to me by my parents and by their siblings about who we are as Black people in Canada, that really came to life for me in that space. And I was able to see myself really clearly for the first time, love myself more deeply. And then I found myself really excited about how this restoration was was manifesting, like how it was coming to be. It literally was going to be demolished. And the next thing we were catapulted into a $1 million capital campaign in 1999 with Black people at the forefront and people from all over the community coming together to make it so. And I just needed more of it. I wanted to understand the anatomy of movement making, the anatomy of um, philanthropic investment for social change and for the preservation of um, history and the stories of oppressed peoples. And so between those two things, I just started to know in myself where I wanted to spend my time in this world. And that's in the philanthropic space, in the charitable space, making change for the betterment of people. As I read this, in just a few moments earlier, you write, you, you talk about 
I fell in love with my blackness, my identity, my people, my history. And then as you conclude this chapter, you talk about courage. There's a point at which you, I, I, I remember certain you talk about courage. And after having read the book, I think what I thought as I was reading your particular section is somebody, cause you were, you were essentially one of the organizers who was sort of pulling this together. I think one of the things that sort of occurred to me is, is that as someone like myself who needs to read this and sort of contemplate the, the embarrassment and shame and the unfortunate things and terrible things that the stories that were very honest stories that needed to be told. You also end it with a much, you end it with a degree of hope and encouragement. And I felt like that was like, okay, you're not letting us off the hook. right? <laughs> you're saying this is good work and you're saying this has been powerful work for you, but you also say there's hope for this and, and, and we've got somewhere else to go. Am I, am I interpreting that correctly? Am I, am I putting words in your mouth or am I, can I get away with that? You absolutely are correct. And, you know, the interesting thing is when I wrote that, that story, I tasked myself or challenged myself to write to a black audience. And so I, at the beginning, I yeah. say, this is who I'm writing yeah. to, but yeah. there are lessons here for everyone. Right. And one of the things that I think marks my, my experience as a black woman is the, the pervasive hope that exists in my community, no matter what the circumstances are. Yeah. Yeah. As, as I'm, as I'm listening to what you're saying, it's kind of interesting as you sort of share the timeline of your own professional history, isn't it? As it aligns with sort of where we are in the world as a woman, it, it, I, I don't know that I've ever sort of contemplated this. It's a little bit of a, a bunny trail. We'd go down for a moment. You have found both fundraising has in many ways created opportunities for women to play leadership roles that in other parts of the economy, other parts of society, we haven't necessarily afforded, I guess you could say. Does that make sense? I don't even know if I'm saying that. Mm -hmm. Did you follow what I'm saying? I don't know that. I don't know that because I've talked to so many, our guests, we've had so many women on here. And oftentimes when I'm speaking, you know, there's times when there's 90% of the people in the room are women. And, and I don't know that we, I don't know that we give fundraising credit for, for being part of that sort of that elevating mechanism that has allowed women to enter into the workforce and play meaningful roles. Um, perhaps that's some, that's some credit that, and I'm sure other, I'm sure someone has done. So. Well, the interesting thing is, is that is absolutely true on many fronts, but there's a lot of reasons why that is. But the part that I'm most interested in is the fact that while that's true, Black women don't take up much space mm -hmm. among those women. Right, right. And so that's, I think that is a conversation um, that needs to happen more often. So, Nika, we invite our guests to come on here with a big idea or bold opinion. Uh, we don't generally ask. Sometimes I have some ideas about what we're going to talk about. But honestly, you and I only know each other as, as much as I've read the book. And we've had one previous conversation. So I don't know where you're going to take us today. So <laughs> take us anywhere you would like to. <laughs> well, thank you, Jason. Well, I struggled with this concept of a big idea. Yeah. I was, from the minute you said big idea, I was like, I struggled. And I wasn't sure why. I, I definitely had, I knew what I wanted to talk about. Okay. But, but for some reason, there was a wrestling going yes. on within yeah. me. And it's interesting. My, 
my son in love and my daughter were headed out of town on uh, Sunday. And um, I thought, well, let me tell them what I'm going to talk about. And I okay. did. And my, my son in love, who, who, who is very analytical, um, as he's like packing and walking back and forth and whatnot, um, he just said, he says, well, to me, you know, the, the notion of a big idea or a moonshot, he calls yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. To him, he's like, I think it's rooted in white supremacy culture. Yeah. Okay. And then he got my attention immediately. I was like, what, 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 what? I don't, I, I, I get that. I can appreciate and so, that. And so I was like, tell me more, tell me yeah. more what you're saying. Yeah. And uh, he says, well, you know, big ideas are, you know, things that are basically impossible to achieve because if they were, we would plan for them Yeah. and make them happen. And then yeah. they wouldn't necessarily be a big idea, but it'd be a strategy or a plan or our goal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and so it kind of, you know, kind of conflicts with this idea of a, of a moonshot. And so I started thinking about that. And I'm like, oh, is this what I'm wrestling? Is this what I've I've been wrestling with? And then I went back to our notes and I and I saw big idea or bold opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, so I need to position this as a bold opinion. Yeah. So whatever. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, he's totally right. What's his name? What's your son-in-law's name? Skyler. 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 Yeah. He's totally right. That, that, I mean, I would totally concur with that, that, that it's totally white, you know, white privileged men who think that they have the privilege of big ideas. Right. I mean, I've been, I've been, I've been spending my own time with my own book research and this idea that we go to this, I, I, I've been landing a lot, a lot of this, um, what the, what what I think is called great man theory and great man theory dates back to the end of it, you know, during the industrial revolution and the beginning of the 20th century, when we, when we relied on great primarily white men to sort of have the great ideas to change the world. And, um, and I appreciate that we have, and I I think part of what we're trying to do here in our sort of micro little space of fundraising is, is capture those big ideas of bold opinions from, Generally, people that I see at the fringe, mm-hmm. um, I don't, I don't want to have all the big ideas or bold opinions. I've got them. I've got yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear so, what do you? But I totally can. But to to give a nod to our, our to my friend Skyler, tell, tell him I totally concur with the uh, with the idea. Yes. Well, the, the opinion, thank yes. you. Well, it's interesting. So then I started to think about what I wanted to talk about in the context of a bold opinion. I started to ask yeah. myself questions about. Well, you know, is this, does this make sense for you? Should you, should you talk about this? And then I, this picture I, that I emailed you just before we got on here no, came I'm, to my mind and it, you want to tell people what the picture is? Yeah. So I'm looking at, uh, for the sake of our listeners, I'm looking at a picture of, I'm guessing that's you, Nika, right? It is, is that, me. Okay. I, I didn't, I thought maybe it could be you or it could be your daughter. Of course it could be your daughter. Um, and, and, and you're standing in front of a, looks like a shop window or something in bold with a sign that says, I am bold. Yes. So my daughter took this picture. So we're in okay. California yeah. on a, trip a few years ago and we are shopping and walking around and whatnot. And my daughter says, sees the sign and says, go stand in front of that sign. Yeah. And she's not the type of kid that's like snapping pictures all the time. She said, go stand in front of that sign. We need to get a picture of you in front of that sign. And I thought it was cute and funny. And I did. And how, uh, how, old, how old is your daughter at this point? Give me some more context. We would have been, so we were in California uh, shopping. No, no. What were we in California for? We were in California 
for she was an adult. She was in university. Oh, okay. okay I won't okay. remember her exact age. Because she evidently knew her mom if she's telling you to stand in front of that sign. She well, knew her mom. Well, this I thought. Yeah, I am bold. But then it was really interesting for me to see how she was interpreting that and what that meant to her. And I started to 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 reflect on this experience and how it sort of emboldened me to embrace my boldness. Yes, right. You know, yes, because right. oftentimes that can be not looked favorably upon in our society, depending on who you are, right? And as a right. black woman, yes. that can get mixed up with a whole bunch of stuff, right? Yes, definitely. And so... I shared that with you just as a point of reference for my realignment of thinking as I, I share with you my, my bold opinion. And my bold opinion is this. I think rested Black women should lead the charitable sector. Uh, so the, the first word, rested? Rested. I'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, Because <laughs> you're going to have to explain to me what that means. And oh, don't, please sure don't embarrass am. me. <laughs> oh, I sure am. Rested Black <laughs> women should lead the charitable sector. Should I believe should lead. lead, 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 lead. Oh, lead. Okay, they're not leaving because there has been. You you know, there's been some conversations amongst some black women in our space that have been talking about leaving and encouraging women to leave. And so, yeah. okay, so, so, so we're not we're not encouraging them to leave. Okay, no. Okay. okay, I'm encouraging them to. Pardon me. I'm encouraging our our sector. Yeah. To put them at the helm. Yeah. We have a. Uh... I believe that's powerful because I think our sector is sort of descending into irrelevance if we stay on this path. So I'm going to let you. So, one of the things. So, I teach over at the local college. In fact, I, I just got out of class a half hour ago. We have a black woman who's been uh, leading our institution, your college of Pennsylvania. She's been leading the institution, I want to say, for about a decade. Mm-hmm. followed, I think, three, well, well, actually, all of our history prior at your college, all of our history prior to uh, our current president uh, has been um, white men. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's led the institution remarkably well. She's diversified the, the team, the, you know, this, where the students are coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, we can, you know, so um, I, uh, so I have paid attention and I have talked about this. This is, this is what I'm saying. And I don't want to hijack the conversation. I want to totally but I've talked about this, this sort of this, this idea of, of black women in leadership and in the nonprofit sector in my nonprofit courses. So yeah. tell, tell us, unpack this some more for us. Why does, why such a, why such a bold opinion? Why well, I, I actually think it's the, it's, it's a solution to the majority of the crises that our sector is currently facing. Now, I just want to be clear. Like when I say black women leading, Mm-hmm. I'm talking about them leading with power and influence to shift or change culture. So this is yeah. not like, let's just put a few black women out front while we maintain white supremacy culture. Right, right, I'm talking right. about fully putting black women to the forefront and allowing them to mold and shape, shift the culture. Yeah. Where... where... Where do you want, I mean, I mean, are these an, so, so part of what, part of what top typically gets talked about, we talk about leadership, like what, like the, like our president at the college, she's in an official titled role. Are we talking about officially titled roles or are we talking about, I mean, be, be, be more specific here. Help me under, help me understand exactly where you want these people at. 
yeah, what these I, black women I have. think officially titled roles. Yes. yes I mean, right. when you think about power and influence, where is it? Yeah. And I think black women should have it. And what is it that, what is it? So let's, 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 what is it that the Institute, I, I have only worked for, I'm thinking about the cross, you know, across this, across the spectrum of my professional career. I think I, you and I talked about this last time we talked. I've worked for one black woman and then I've worked for all white men prior to that. Mm-hmm. And it was a completely different, it was a completely different and, and honestly a much better uh, learning experience in the sense that, that this woman, Danielle, get, empowered me to learn in a way that none of my previous, and I would probably say Tracy, my, my next boss thereafter, uh, did not afford to me. Yeah. Is that the type of stuff we're talking about? Oh, yeah. This is a it's a white guy here that you're talking to that's benefited from that. But you you're talking about you're talking about an impact that has far greater benefit, I'm guessing, than just for the average Joe white guy like me to benefit from. I think it has the potential to benefit everyone. So inside our organizations, outside our organizations, our beneficiaries, our society. Yeah, I think there's no limit to how it can benefit us all. It, at times, some of these conversations, Nika, the, about changing the changing the leadership structure. Like I was, we were part of a church plant for a number of years, my wife and I, and 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 there was there was the discuss. I remember being a part of the, a part of a discussion where it kind of it arrived at a place where you almost had to say some of these churches just have to die. Some of these organizations just have to die and go away because the only way Nika for that to work for us to get to what you're describing, we've basically got to convince more black women to start the organizations because some of these organizations just will not evolve and adapt and budge. Like I can think of several, several, (laughs) I mean, I live in South central Pennsylvania and one of the highest Trump voting counties in the country. Um, it's an old white man's town. Some of these organizations just ain't going to budge mm-hmm. and they're just going to have to go away. I think we've had this. I think I've had, I think I've said that very statement here on the podcast before to, I, I don't know if it's so much bold for you to say that more black women need to lead as much as we need to let some of these organizations that won't go away. Oh, I think they absolutely, I, I think both of these things can be true at yeah. the same time. Right. And so, yeah. I think really what I'm talking about is how do we put power in the hands of black women? Power in the charitable sector. Yeah. Right. Whatever that looks like. That could look like starting their own organizations, but having the power and influence necessary to do that, to do that well, to succeed. Right. It could mean taking over. Yeah. Right. And inevitably it, it will mean, some organizations need to go away. I mean, there's an argument to be made about the fact that some organizations just need to go away anyhow because of duplication of service or, you know, like we really should be striving to yeah. solve the problems our organizations were created to solve and focus on that versus just sort of maintaining our organizations. I think some of the response and, and explain this to me, because I think some of the response that I, some, I think some of the reaction that I'm guessing that I'm guessing some black women would have to your suggestion is they don't want to take up that task. I think I've been told that that some black women don't want to take on that task because they've put in the time and the labor 
to get mm-hmm. to get where we're at. Yep. Am I right? My wife's had to explain this to me. I had a previous guest who basically said, I don't want to do that work for the sector. Yeah. I don't want to go that. I don't want and to what do I'm that. Not talking about that. I had to sit down. I had to sit down with my wife and I, I said, Erica, help me. <laughs> so I'm wrestling with this because I really want to honor what this woman's telling me. Um, but I think, you know, she would be one of those individuals that says, I don't want, I don't want to take on that task. What do you say to her? I say, good for you, sister. You don't have to. <laughs> right. You, you don't, don't have to. Right. You don't have to do it. But there are plenty of other black yeah. women who do want to do it, who have the capacity to do it, who are highly skilled to do it, who are gifted, in fact, to do it, whose legacy, whose history has informed their ability to do it and to do it really well. I want to get to the rested part because I have a feeling. Yeah, yeah. you said rested and I make yeah. rested, R-E-S-T-E-D, right? Rested. That's right. Okay. Rested. Rested. Okay. That's okay. right. Rested. I added that in um, on purpose. Okay. Rest is one of my primary focuses uh, this year and it will continue to be, but I'm doing a lot of heavy lifting on the yeah. question of rest. Uh, yeah. right now. And I say rested because I, I think it's necessary in order to lead well. And when I say rested, I'm talking about how the NAP ministry, for instance, defines it. Okay. Which is a resistance to the labor required by dominant culture. So it's a decolonized, anti-oppressive, yep. anti-racist, anti-capitalistic worldview yep. yep. and life ethic. Yeah. Right. I believe it's only from that place that we can prioritize our wellness and the wellness of others. And I think that makes us inherently more human, Mm -hmm. humane towards ourselves and humane towards others. And I think it fosters that idea or that belief of loving the whole person. What does the sector, because I've thought about this, what does the sector itself, the nonprofit sector, have to understand about itself to understand that we can actually deliver on this better than the marketplace can and perhaps better than the government can? Because I think the aspiration you're talking about, we can actually do. Mm-hmm. And I think we have been borrowing. A lot of my criticism is we've been borrowing ideas and we hear it all the time, behave like a business, do like this, right? And mm-hmm. then and then we also borrow the bureaucracy and the way that we do grant writing and stuff, some of the mechanical yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, we go it, it's it's like you're either gonna build machines or you're building profitable enterprises. But I don't think to get to such an aspiration that you're talking about, I think the nonprofit sector has to learn how to be its own. It's gotta um, it's got to awaken itself and realize that we actually have a different way of operating. Well, this is why my bold opinion is that black women should lead, because I think what you're asking is, is about a culture change, a culture change that's necessary in order to facilitate this, in order yeah. to organize ourselves in, in a way in which we actually honor the whole person. Yes. Where we yes. actually live into what the word philanthropy means. Yes. yes right. Yeah. And. That culture change, that culture shift has to move away from white supremacy culture, which I mean, the majority of our society is, 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 is built upon. Yeah. And we as a, a, as a charitable sector have just, you know, absorbed and adopted. Of course, we're a microcosm of that. Yeah. But I think you're right. I think we have the capacity. Absolutely. 
to do something different. In fact, when you look at philanthropy outside of the Western model, Mm -hmm. there are a tremendous amount of examples of how it can be done differently. It's not individualistic. They are not, right? They are collectivist, (laughs) right? right? Right. They are not focused on, you know, the top, you know, 10% of donors who have the most money. Mm -hmm. They look at all donors and the contribution Mm -hmm. that they all can make and understanding that we are making movements here. We're not just raising money. We're raising money so we can make change, right? And that's movement making. You need people. You need volume. You need mass. I'm reminded of a story. I want to tell you a little story of an uh, African-American woman who assumed leadership of our inner city school district here in, in, here in Pennsylvania nearby. And I remember a consulting friend of mine saying to me, uh, I remember Rich, Richard was his name. I remember him saying to me, and I kind of wonder if this, if this is embedded in your thinking is with this might be part of what this opinion might be as well. He said the person, because this, this, this school district needed to be turned around. It needed mm-hmm. to be completely turned around. And in some ways, we're talking about a turnaround conversation here. That's what mm-hmm. we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, he said, and this is before this woman was hired, and she did a remarkable job. Um, and he said, we need to find somebody who has nothing to lose, who has nothing to lose, meaning they can come in and be as bold as hell and do whatever the hell they think they need to do in order to turn this school district around. And they're not fearful of the, 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 I mean, shoot, so what if they fire me, right? I mean, is that part of it? Is there something that perhaps some of our listeners, somebody like me, so say I'm on, I'm on a board, say I'm on an, an all white male dominated board and I'm thinking about candidates. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at, I've had, I've had, I've had clients that passed over African American women that I told could do the job mm-hmm. better than, than the person that they hired. How do we how do we convince that board that hiring who whoever that person is that's helping make that decision that that bold black woman may be the woman that they want to hire and put in this role? Well, I think that board shouldn't be all white people. I think that I, I, be- right. I I don't I, I don't right. That's that's the some of these organizations right. I right. Forgive me, but 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 they do they do they do. Well, that's a part of the leadership change I'm talking about too, though. Yes. I mean, I mean, and my board, I, I guarantee you there's probably very few African-Americans on my board at the college. They, yeah. you know, I, I think they see that, but I, but I think it was, I think part of what our president's role is, is to presumably change that, that dynamic on that board. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, there is a, there's a worthy question around where to begin. Right. And, yes. The, yes. And, you know, when we think about, you know, leadership, we, often go to CEO, ED. Yes. But I'm actually also talking about boards of directors. I'm I'm talking about power and influence, wherever yeah. it resides. Yeah. And so the, your question about not having anything to lose, I, you know, that's a really interesting thing because I, I believe black women have something to lose. Oh, yeah. Okay. Why? Yeah. Why? Well, what do well, they have to lose? Well, I think we cannot deny that we exist in a society that does not honor 
the, the main intersections of our identity, which means they don't understand us. The society wasn't built for us. Yes, and right. so, and so there is, there is a follow, there's a ripple effect of that. And so when we, so that's just if we do nothing. Yes. Right. And so then when we do bold things, for instance, I alluded to this at the beginning, right? When we do bold things, we tend to suffer repercussions more acutely. <clears throat> the way we are penalized is more acute. And so I don't buy that, you know, we don't have anything to lose. Now, I do think there's something professionally, professionally speaking, I, 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 professionally speaking, you could say that they have something to lose. But I think part of the I think part of the flinch that you're typically going to get from a again, this is this is a white guy talking here. Um, a, a white guy who sort of lived in a male dominant white male dominated white, you know, who sort of lived in the world that favors me. Right. Thinks he has everything to lose to get out of the way. Right. But if I get out of the way of a black woman who can help an organization take off, who is starting, who had, who's starting at a very different place than I do, because I come in, I get the privilege of coming in already two or three steps or 10 steps out of you. Right. And so that, I guess that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the idea and, and I, and I'm sort of interpreting what the advice was about this, what this gentleman made in the success that this woman had for our school district. I wonder if she started at a point where she had nothing to lose because she, I, so, you know, that's really interesting. Like I feel like I'm thinking about myself, you know, yeah. if I were her, you know, yeah. and I think, I, I don't think that would be the question on my mind. Okay. I think, I think the thing I would be thinking is, do I care what they think? Right. <laughs> I don't right. think she did because they, Nika, right. they eventually, they, exactly. two or three years, two or three years later, they're, they're dealing with the, she, she eventually was fired largely because these, these charter schools were creating a problem in her school district, had really nothing to do with her leadership abilities and everything to do with the fiasco that she inherited. Uh, but I don't think she cared. That's, I guess that's kind of the point too that, that Mr. Huffer was making. She, she didn't care. Yeah, I think that's different than not having anything to lose because losing your job, no matter what the circumstances are, has an impact, right? Yeah. And so, and, and, and how you describe the ending of that scenario is not unfamiliar. Yeah. You know, the reality of my career is that I have worked for mainly white leaders and none of the white leaders I have ever worked for deserve their job. Like full stop, like complete. Yeah. I get it. I get it. I get it. Right. Right. I, I say, well, I work with a lot of private schools. A lot of them are run by white men and, 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 and I've looked at, and they're not of them are not being run by black women, for example, but even, even I have said this repeatedly, we need to, you know, half these schools need to be run by more women, for example. And I think we're already seeing, we've been seeing that we've been seeing that. And you're pushing that, you're pushing that message a step further. And, and, and what is intriguing to me that I get to host the, this is the privilege I get. See, this is the privilege I get is I get that I put you on the spot. You said it and then I get to push it out there. Yeah. And it might actually work. It might actually work, Nika. Yeah. Um, you know, here's, here's the reason why I really think that this is a, is worth. <laughs> 
in exploring. Yeah. When I look at black women in my life, <clears throat> I have watched them all persist while suffering. They survive, they thrive. Yeah. Through individual traumas, through collective traumas. And they emerge in, you know, with a sense of sisterhood and, and, and with grace. They digest grief and allow it to expand their ability to love people. I mean, it's just, it's really remarkable to me. I think about my grandmothers, you know, my, my mother's mother lost two of her sons uh, to murder in their twenties. She, her husband was abusive, shot her in her hip, cut her eye out of her face. She had 12 kids. She was the most joy filled person I ever knew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The ability to keep a, a family of that size. I have like 50 first cousins. Right. And we gathered. Right. Every holiday at Dolores Robinson's house in Detroit, Michigan. You know what I'm saying? Like, yep. when I think about that and I think about the many, that's just one example, the many examples of how Black women thrive and survive. It's, it's magic to me. So if you and I, Nika, if you and I are applying, I would bet that our resumes side by side, when we're looking at resumes, look, we're probably equally as qualified for a lot of the jobs that you and I, for example, would apply for. What's going to make you better? And I'm the only one who, because I'm the host of this show and uh, not everybody always gets to sort of be this bold with it. But what makes you necessarily better at this job than me? What's going to make you better as the chief development officer for ABC organization than me because of who you are different than who I am? Yeah. And our resume, assuming our resumes look the same, we, you know, we finished graduate school. We've both got all the credentials we could want. Mm-hmm. I believe it is a number of things, but I think it's my capacity to empathize with the other, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. just theoretically, but in experience. I know yep. what it is to not belong. Yep. I understand. I think, you know, most of our charitable organizations are out here trying to solve social problems. And we're talking about oppressed people, you know. And working with them and supporting them. And I think there's no substitute for lived experience. I think the experiences and the solutions that we develop on the margins of society have great value. And we bring those with us wherever we go. And my experience has been that the average white person doesn't have, doesn't have access to that. They do not have the experience of interdependence and collectivism. And its ability to transform and to change um, culture and to change the environment around you or to just um, improve circumstances. I think our commitment to the relational is something that is woven tightly into our cultural experience as Black people because... That is how we survive. Like, I shouldn't be here. I'm a descendant of American slavery. Based on the brutality of that institution, I should not exist, but I do. And I do not exist because of kind white people helping black people escape. 
I, I exist because of the interconnectedness. Yeah. Yeah. Of my community, uh-huh. of my ancestors, both African and indigenous and their ability to pursue and, and achieve freedom against all odds. Is there something that the nonprofit sector has to understand about political correctness and the rules of the game? <laughs> Some of the things that we talk about, about what justice really is in order to get to a place like that, because the, the playbooks that we're playing by don't allow us to necessarily favor a, you versus me. Well, but I think some of that's complete bullshit. And I think some of that bullshit is actually what maintains the status quo in a myriad of ways. I mean, even if we were not even on this subject, I think, I think some of the political correctness that's embedded in what we think is, I mean, I don't even know if is my average DEI consultant who's, you know, who's taking, uh, who works in the HR department or whatever even going to concur with you and I, if we say this and you and let's say you and I are on this board and we're going to drive this organization in this direction is the average HR slash DEI consultant necessarily going to agree with us that we could be this explicit. So I think, I think a few things, one, how you define justice Mm -hmm. needs to happen with oppressed people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If you're if you're defining it in isolation, yeah, your probably your definition is probably flawed. Right. <laughs> you know, if you want to know what justice is, go ask people who are oppressed. They'll tell you. There's there's messiness in this. I, I guess that's what one hundred percent. Yes, there, this loops back to my question fifteen minutes ago about the idea that I think the nonprofit sector is better suited for this. So in my in my in first couple of weeks of, in my nonprofit management course, we talk about all the contradictions and the complexity and the messiness that exists by design in the nonprofit sector, mm-hmm. right? And we're always trying to uh, you know simplify it. And, complicate it and turn it into a, you know, an operating manual. So the things you and I are talking about aren't going to fit in an operating manual. Well, no, we're trying to, we're trying to solve social problems. So we're talking about problems that, that, that involve people. Yes. And so that's always going to be messy. Yes. And so how we feel about messiness, I think is, is worth scrutinizing, right? Are we, how are we judging messiness? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where to, I, I, uh, you've got me thinking, you've got me thinking. I want to know. So let, before I, before I wrap this up, cause we usually hold on to our listeners for about 45 minutes and that's where I've got you. Um, I want to know average mom and pop nonprofit organization down the street in any, you know, hometown community here in, in Canada, in the U S anywhere else. Um, I want to know, practically speaking, if you want that African-American, that black woman, do you want her in the CEO spot or the chief development role first? Mm. Oh, I feel like that's a trick question, Jason, because it's the. So I would say CEO first. The CEO role. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. If you and I were designing an organization, you would be okay with the idea 
you're going to be the CEO. I'm going to be the chief development officer. And we're going to change, but we're going to do whatever we're changing. You'd be, you'd be more settled with that than the other way around. There's a yes. lot of people. The other way around is, is what plays out. Yes. It's what's playing out. It's part yes. of what you're saying is the problem. There's plenty of guys like me yes. that are running these shops. They find a sharp woman like you who can do the job, but you're still basically, you're just basically making me look great. Right. Right. You know, I think my my initial attraction to obviously leading development is that the beauty, the thing that appeals to me the most is our ability to have one foot in the community and one foot inside the organization and the influence that we ought to be having as as it relates to that positionality. But the the reality is the CEO is should be our chief fundraiser and should be also maintaining the same posture. Right. And so so it's definitely CEO. It's for the reasons that you just said. But I mean, that question still looms around what about the board? Well, I think. And I again, I get the privilege of asking these questions. You pose the you pose the idea and I get the I get the sort of uncomfortable privilege of being and being able to ask these questions, because I know my I know I know my white listeners are thinking some of these things. do I get the privilege? Is part of my privilege? Is part of my opportunity? You know how I just said. You know how I just said. It, it's mm-hmm. basically flipping the script. It's flipping the script because a chief development officer, anybody in a number two senior leadership role or whatever, it, we often talk about how their job is to make the CEO look great. But mm-hmm. is part of my role as the white guy who's going to step into the chief development role? Is part of the definition of allyship? I guess is what I'm asking. Making you look great. Or do I have a wrong interpretation of what we're talking about here? Yeah. So you, you get what I'm going at here because then, then my white supremacy is still playing out in that. So right. Two, two things. <laughs> two things. Yeah. One, I believe that when we, when, when we move black people into leadership roles or when yeah. they move into those roles, yeah, that it needs to happen in groups of three at a minimum for safety. Okay. okay. That's okay. one note I think is is worth helpful. Right. Yeah. So it's not just the CEO by herself or right. There's at least two other black women close by or black man. Yeah. I say black women at the top because of our intersectional identity and what we, what that brings into the sector. That's another conversation for another time. The question about whether or not the role of the CDO is to make the CEO look good. Yeah. I don't believe that that's the role. Okay. I believe that the chief development officer's role is to inspire investment in the change that you seek to make through your organization, through your mission. Yeah, right, right, okay. And and so the question, the question that I have always struggled with wherever I have worked is, well, how is that happening? Because it's the how they go about inspiring investment that is rife with problems. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're t- one of the things we talk about with a lot of our clients, Nika, is organizational design. And I think, I think the nonprofit sector just doesn't understand that some of these aspirations that we're talking about and some of what the nonprofit sector is, if we understood, and it's like, it's going, it's kind of like going back to this notion of messiness. We, we, we could do some of this stuff. We could actually do some of this stuff. I, 100% believe that. That's actually why I landed on the bold 
and not the the big idea because i'm like this is doable with the will and 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 the planning it is doable yeah yeah and 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 as a guy and as a guy who's worked for both black women and white women and plenty of white men i'm all for it (laughs) i had a lot of fun working with danielle and I've, i've i've enjoyed the time that i've worked you know the 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 role that black women have played in my life, as I shared with you when we first met, yes, is, is quite extraordinary. And uh, and I and so uh, so I think people like me are trying to. I, I I know that people who are listening to this conversation who pro- perhaps see themselves more sitting in my seat than yours, we're trying to figure out how to be in the right place, how to sort of get out of the way, and play the right role in such aspirations. I think that's kind yeah. of, is that yeah. kind of some. Does that kind of make sense? It does make sense. And, you know, our role and our positionality in this, in in the change that I'm describing here is vital. And so, you know, as much as you've been saying, get out of the way. And I, and I, I appreciate that language. I also uh, very much resonate with the notion of getting behind black women. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. What I appreciate, Nika, is when I have these conversations, um, when they unsettle me and they make me think and all that sort of stuff, part of what they do is they give me language and they inspire me to think. And I'm sure there's somebody on the listening side of this who's enjoyed our conversation. Um, they may be interested in picking up a copy of your book. Um, folks, just to remember, Collecting Courage, Joy, Pain, Freedom, and Love, Anti-Black Racism, the Charitable Sector, uh, Nika, Allen, and the rest of the, uh, the group we talked about that. We'll put uh, links in the show notes. But Nika, one of the things I always like to ask at the very end of these conversations, especially people who are in a consulting role like yours, who is the person you want to hear from? So after all this conversation we've just had, which, which is kind of an interesting, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting question to ask now that we've had the conversation we've had, who is the person you want to hear from? Because you're going to hear, somebody's going to hear this. I guarantee you, somebody's going to hear this conversation. They're going to reach out to you. Who do you want that to be? Oh, I, you know, so I'm a curious person and I'm a personal and and I'm a person person. I like people. Yeah. I want to hear from anyone who is curious by this conversation. Anybody who, um, who is saying a lot of, "Mm mm-hmm, amen. Right, right. right. (laughs) right? Um, and, And frankly, you know, I'm, I love talking to people who are also challenged by this conversation because there's there that is a, a great starting point. So are you a safe person for a person who thinks you're wrong to start a conversation with? So I don't believe in safe places, safe spaces. Okay. I believe okay. brave and safer spaces. Okay. okay. I, I, and, and because I'm a curious person, I know how to transform you know, anger or aggravation into curiosity. And yeah. and that always makes for better conversations. And so we may end up disagreeing. Like I can tell you, I, you could probably guess <laughs> on certain things. I'm not changing my mind. Right. 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 And that's okay. And I expect yes. other people to show up that way too. Right. But how we engage in dialogue in the in-between can be really interesting and can yeah. be um, a really great growth opportunity. For, for both people involved, including myself. So, yeah. Nika, it has certainly been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. Oh, thanks so much, Jason. I'd love to come back anytime. 
Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.